0: Welcome back. Um, I'm, I'm kind of hoping your stamina's going okay. I know that there's been a lot of, um, you know, material, but um, it's it is a. I'm finding it wonderful to be here and to speak into your listening, which I'm finding very profound. And um, so, thank you for that. And uh, this morning uh, we continue, kind of, on from yesterday. Just briefly reminding you that um, the fundamental question I was kind of circling around yesterday was the question of why can't we just meditate and what um, what our Christianity adds to our contemplative practice. And the last talk yesterday sought to explore how meditating in the company of Jesus enables an ever-deepening transformation of consciousness and enables us to discover ourselves more and more on the inside of the divine life and able to imagine our growth and our maturation in those terms. And I said at the end of the talk yesterday that this suggests that there is a particular gift that our world community for Christian meditation is called to receive and a particular vocation we're called to be true to. So this morning's talk is called The Vocation of a Contemplative Community. There's a powerful scene midway, or in fact, it's kind of on the early side, in the first film, the first book of J.R.R. R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy. The wizard, Gandalf the Grey, has gone to meet the head of his order, Saruman the White, to tell him that Middle-earth faces a grave crisis. The forces of Mordor, and I hope that some of you at least remember this story, have been gathering strength, and now the Ring of Power, which had been hidden in the possession of the hobbit Bilbo Baggins, has awakened. The Dark Lord, Sauron, seeks it with all his might. And should it come into his hands, the whole world would fall under his sway and into darkness. Gandalf knows the situation is critical, yet pleads for Saruman's aid. There is still time, my lord. But Saruman, who has already betrayed Middle Earth and given his allegiance to the Dark Lord, replies in chilling tones, The hour is later than you think. (laughs) As we've already acknowledged, we meet to explore a contemplative Christianity for our time at a moment that seems critical for the future of life on Earth. Scientists speak of our having entered a new geological epoch, the Anthropocene, where for the first time in evolutionary history, Human activity is not only shaping but radically disrupting the Earth system processes necessary to sustain life. It's well known that we're exceeding planetary limits in a whole range of areas, from carbon emissions to ocean acidification to biodiversity loss. And that, in the words of French scholar Jean-Pierre Dupuis, Humanity is currently on a suicidal course towards a disaster comprised of a whole system of disruptions, discontinuities, and basic structural changes that are the consequences of exceeding critical thresholds. In the past year, scientists have given us a time frame. We have 11 years left in which to act decisively if we're to have any expectation of saving ourselves. And some are concerned that even this is optimistic. This isn't some wacko millenarian prophecy. It's the sober calculation of the best scientists of our day. It's astonishing, terrifying that we are here. The hour is later than you think. This context necessarily colours everything we say about the Christian vocation. Just as the German church in the 1930s could not truthfully gather to reflect on its life and call without engaging the so-called Jewish question, so Christian communities in our day gather and act with integrity only to the extent we are mindful of responsive to the ecological crisis and all that will flow from it. It's important to say that this context doesn't change the essential elements of the Christian vocation. These hold true simply because of who God is and how God wills to be related to the world. It does, however, require us to recognise afresh the urgency of our call and to sharpen our sense of answerability. Well, So far in these talks, I've sought to show that the whole point of Christianity is to lead us beyond self-serving, dualistic, tribal religiosity, and to make available the possibility of a new way of being human and being in the world. This possibility, witnessed to and, as I said yesterday, enabled by Jesus, affects every aspect of human life, the way we know and perceive, the way we experience ourselves, the way we're empowered to act and relate to others. The heart of it all, I've suggested, is realising that we are not and do not have to be the source of our own lives and meaning. I drew on the philosopher Wittgenstein's image of faith as being suspended from heaven and said that this notion of being suspended invites us to see ourselves held in being beyond our self-securing identities, that filial relationship of Jesus to the Father. It reminds us that we do not terminate in ourselves. Life can be lived as a continuous trusting receptivity and responsiveness to what is given. And it's this that enables a radical unthreatenedness in our way of being. Meditation is a practice that both enacts and deepens this experience of trust. And so liberates us more and more to be in the world as Christ was. Self-giving, handed over. This possibility for humanity is part of what our world community is called to communicate, to share, and to embody. And on this vision, living as Christians is thus essentially about participation, it's about incarnating in our lives. God's way of being, joining with God in what God is doing. But what does this really mean? How is this vocation realised? And how might it matter for a world in crisis? Well, these are the questions I want to focus on this morning And I'm going to identify what seem to me three key aspects of our vocation as contemplative followers of Christ. Aspects that correspond to the Trinitarian life of God as creator, redeemer, and giver of life. This first section is called co-creating. My Father is still working, and I also am working. These words from the Gospel of John reflect the New Testament's profound and emerging sense that Jesus is participating in and helping to fulfil the work of creation itself. In the text of John's Gospel, This insight is communicated in many and subtle ways. For example, Jesus' repeated practice of healing people on the Sabbath signifies not simply the breaking of a religious rule, but his deliberate denial that God is resting on the Sabbath day. Jesus is proclaiming, in effect, that the work of creation is ongoing. Similarly, in John chapter 9, when he heals the man born blind by making mud from the dust of the ground and spreading it on his eyes, he is symbolically completing an unfinished creation so that, as he says to his disciples, God's works might be revealed in him. Now, clearly, part of what's going on here is the gospel testifying to the divinity of Jesus. In him we're being shown God's own life is breaking the surface. God's creative activity breaking into the created order and bringing it to fulfilment. So radically attuned and obedient is Jesus to the Father that there's no gap between what he says and does and what God says and does. Very truly, I tell you, he declares, the son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Yet while this power of co-creation might seem something we can say of Jesus, In what sense, if any, may we see it as a possibility for us, part of our vocation? Well, part of what's helped me reflect on this question is a story told by the English theologian W.H. Vanstone. It's a story that begins with Vanstone's own crisis of vocation as a priest in the Anglican Church. And and while it might seem at first sight a bit of a digression, I'm going to ask you to bear with me as I kind of tell this bit of this story and then seek by means of it to explore this question of co-creation. So Vanstone had grown up in a vicarage in the 1930s where his parents' ministry during the Depression had profoundly shaped his understanding of what Christianity was about and what the church was for. And since a key focus had been meeting the material needs of parishioners and the wider community in their impoverished northern town, it was natural, as Vanstone later wrote, that I should see the importance of the church in terms of the effective kindness which it stimulated, directed and performed. By the time he himself entered ministry, however, things had changed. The rise of the welfare state challenged to a significant extent his sense of the church's vocation for, quote, it meant that there were now other agencies with greater resources and perhaps with greater expertise to do those very things which had been the daily concern of my parents. For a while, Vanstone was reassured of the relevance of his ministry as he tended to the social needs of a large and vibrant community. One day, however, his bishop directed him to a new work, that of establishing a church in a brand new housing estate. And over the ensuing months, this venture catapulted him into crisis. The problem was that as far as Vanstone could see, the residents of this district had no need of a church at all. (laughs) They were polite when he encountered them or visited them, but utterly indifferent to his arrival. Their material needs were met by post-war prosperity and the welfare state. Their social needs catered for by such civic amenities as the Dramatic Association and the Scouts and their lives seemed happy and harmonious. Vanstone experienced his being there as superfluous and irrelevant. Here was Bonhoeffer's world come of age, and Vanstone became steadily more depressed. Then one day, in the midst of his despair, something totally unexpected erupted within him. I experienced, he said, a sudden and complete revolution of attitude. He was still convinced that the church wasn't needed in any practical sense by the happy citizens of this new world. Even so, I suddenly realised that the goodness of this world made the presence of the church not less important, but much more so. Not empty of significance, but more than ever full. It was still clear to me that people did not want the church or need it. But now it was equally clear that it was most important that the church should come to be in the new district and should continue in being. Well, I'm aware that Vanstone's situation seems, in one important sense, utterly removed from ours. Whatever is rendering the church irrelevant to our contemporaries, it's not because anyone thinks all is right with the world. And yet what he suddenly understood is, I think, critical for us too. For as he subsequently wrote, his insight concerned the the dependence of the fruition of God's endeavour in creation on a certain kind of human responsiveness. And The basic thought is this, if creation is interpreted as a work of love, as gift, an expression of God's free determination that the world should be, then there's a sense in which the issue or outcome of God's loving creativity is dependent in some sense on the response it calls forth. <laughs> Vanstone draws an analogy with our human loving, which can be frustrated or thwarted by the refusal of the beloved to receive it for what it is. Authentic love is always vulnerable, not in the sense that it can be diminished or destroyed by the response of the other, but in the sense that the mutuality and self-sharing, the increase for which love yearns, cannot be achieved by the lover alone. It's not just a one-sided thing. In Vanstone's words, love is vulnerable in and through the beloved in the sense that its completion or frustration, its triumph or tragedy, is dependent on the response it receives. Of course in the Christian vision God's love and God's willingness so to speak to keep loving does not depend on us on our response God just is love and will love Moreover in the trinitarian life God's love is already infinitely received responded to and enjoyed in the boundless overflowing of the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. God does not need us to complete God's being or to satisfy a need to be loved in return. Nevertheless, if God's love for the world is, as we say it is, authentically other-directed, authentically self-sharing, then there is some fruition, some fulfilment of God's love that creation is given the power to affect. This power, Vanstone writes, may be called the power of response. At the level of the natural world, Vanstone sees creation responding to the love of God simply by being and becoming itself. But human beings, he suggests, are invited to another level of responsiveness to the love of God, which he calls the response of recognition. And the insight is that in the absence of recognition, love cannot complete the fullness of its work. For it cannot complete its self-giving. You think of a parent who loves a child, but the child will not recognise what's being given, will not let it in. Just as to receive the full blessing of being loved by another person requires that we recognise we are loved. So the completion of God's creative love must wait for the recognition of those who have power recognise. And Vanstone's breakthrough was to understand his apparently irrelevant church as a place in the world called to offer that response of recognition. It's a beautiful way of thinking of what the church is for. And I think this seems rich and true. But how exactly is it connected to the known to the notion that part of our vocation is to be co-creators, somehow participating, as Jesus did, in the ongoing work of God's creative love. Well, two lines of thought seem promising. First, Vanstone considers that our recognition of God's love takes the form of celebration. And this is necessarily a creative activity. Authentic celebration involves a response that expresses understanding and appreciation of the original gift. An artist, for example, recognises and celebrates the work of another artist by responding to it creatively. Maybe they elaborate on a theme or reference an image. or or a scene kind of building on on it and in that way giving homage, honouring, recognising what's gone before. And in the process, brings a new work of art into being. In the same way, recognising and celebrating the love of God involves, in Vanstone's words, the forging of an offering. Now, perhaps this offering will be something tangible, a work of art or science, a song of praise, an act of service, perhaps something more inward, a deepening of awareness, the work struggling to understand, self-giving in prayer. And there are echoes here of the Eastern Orthodox notion that the human vocation is at heart a priestly one, a calling to recognise and give life's gifts back to God in thanksgiving and praise. However it manifests, the final triumph of the love of God, says Vanstone, is the celebration of God's love within that universe which has received that love. And this calls forth our conscious and creative responsivity and artistry, if you like. So this is one sense in which we may understand the call to participate in creation's continuing unfolding and fruition. But what about the creation itself? the living material world made by God. Is there any sense in which we can see our vocation to celebrate the world as having the power actually to co-create life? In Australia, Aboriginal or First Nations people speak of singing up country. And this singing of the world Celebrating the gift is part of how they believe the life and well-being of land, plants, animals and waters is strengthened and sustained. It seems a way of thinking less at home in the Christian imagination. But I wonder, clearly, Once we've begun really to recognise the world as a work of love, then destructive or exploitative ways of relating to creation become impossible. Apprehend God in all things, for God is in all things, said Meister Eckhart. Every single creature is full of God. Every creature is a word of God. If I spent enough time with the tiniest creature, even a caterpillar, I would never have to prepare a sermon. So full of God is every creature. Once the world comes alive for us in this way, then we can no longer simply use and consume it heedlessly as a resource for our fleeting satisfaction, a dump for our refuse, an inert background to our human drama. But I want to suggest something even more than this. Because if it's true that the material world is an expression of love, and if Jesus' fully conscious receptivity to this love manifests in creation with healing effects, then is the thought of our being co-creators in this sense so far-fetched? The more we're drawn into the life of God, the more we know that love goes all the way down. How then could it be that the quality of our love for a world wrought of love would not contribute to its increase? More and more I sense in this time of ecological crisis that actively, consciously loving the world really matters. Loving not just as warm feeling, but as paying attention to a leaf, cloud, an insect, love as listening for, Being with, delighting in. Such active, loving regard for the world is, of course, not in place of radical lifestyle change or political efforts to reduce emissions, transform economic systems and so on. But the spirit in which we undertake our efforts to avert and ameliorate calamity matters deeply. Without love, we gain nothing. Yet if loving this way is part of what it means for us to respond to, to, respond to our vocation to participate in the divine life as co-creators, then what happens when love and life are refused, rejected, or destroyed? This leads directly to the second aspect of the Christian vocation that I want to highlight. And this is the call to undergo, to suffer with, to be a pain bearer. There's a level at which the call to bear pain without, as it were, paying it forward is familiar spiritual territory. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. So wrote St. Paul to the Romans. And similarly, St. Peter, Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. Of course, we all know there are complexities here. When does the exhortation to suffer evil without resisting signify a failure to confront abuse? When is turning the other cheek being a doormat? These questions need discernment in particular cases. And I take for granted there's no sense in which Christian life is about licensing structural injustice or systemic abuse. The essential issue here though, is to do with the energy of transformation and the profound insight that pain, sorrow, wounding, hatred, enmity, cannot ultimately be healed or overcome at the same level from which they issue, reactively or by way of payback. They can only be healed by an encompassing love. And to love this way hurts. Sometimes physically, always at the level of heart and soul. The willingness to keep loving, even as we struggle with our own woundedness, even in the face of misunderstanding and rejection, even as the beloved person or the beloved earth suffers. And we're tempted to hold ourselves back to reduce our exposure or lessen our pain. This is a cruciform way. Yet this is the imitation of Christ. The participation in self-giving, forgiving, redemptive loving to which disciples are called. It is not the religious act that makes the Christian, wrote Bonhoeffer from his prison cell, but participation in the sufferings of God in the secular life. That is metanoia. Not in the first place, thinking about one's own needs, problems, sins and fears, but allowing oneself to be caught up into the way of Jesus Christ, into the messianic event. Like I said, there's a level at which this is familiar territory. And in the literature on the ecological crisis, it's striking the extent to which non-Christian, as well as Christian writers, speak of the necessary work of pain-bearing in this context, the work of grief, the work of lament. But there's a further dimension of this pain-bearing aspect of the Christian vocation that I think can be discerned here. And it's one that's less often commented on. It's the idea that being willing to suffer in this way isn't only about participating in the transformation of the world's pain. It's also the cost of ensuring a habitation for God offering hospitality to God, making God visible in the world. So let me say a little about this. We've already seen that the whole idea of God as some kind of super being, directing traffic from on high and intervening at will in the created order, has been definitively rejected by a world come of age. Not only that, but on the Judeo-Christian understanding, This idea of God is revealed as idolatrous. Man's religiosity makes him look in his distress to the power of God in the world, Bonhoeffer says. But the Bible directs us to God's powerlessness and suffering. God on the cross, God in a tomb, God refusing to compete for space in the world, but freely offering God's self, to liberate creation from within. Jesus asked in Gethsemane, could you not watch with me one hour? That, Bonhoeffer goes on, is a reversal of what the religious man expects from God. The Christian is one who is summoned to share in God's sufferings at the hands of a godless world. And what this might actually mean is shown in a remarkable way in the diary and letters of Etty Hillerson, a Dutch Jew who was also imprisoned by the Nazis like Bonhoeffer, who like Bonhoeffer also did not survive the war. Early in the German occupation, Etty had sensed the necessity of really bearing the pain of what was befalling. She clearly saw that what is at stake is our impending destruction and annihilation. We can have no more illusions about that. And she writes, today I was filled with terrible despair and I shall have to come to terms with that as well. But then she went on, very well then, this new certainty, that what they are after is our total destruction, I accept it. I know it now, and I shall not burden others with my fears. I shall not be bitter if others fail to grasp what is happening to us Jews. Of course, she continued to endure periods of intense grief, fear, and despair. But what was emerging in her was an extraordinary capacity neither to avoid, minimize, or deny the pain of what was happening, while at the same time not to be trapped by it or allow herself to be wholly determined by events. And her accepting of this spiritual discipline was directly connected to a profound and growing experience of the reality she comes to name God. She speaks of God ripening within her. And her writing reflects her growing sense of this ripening, issuing forth in a vocation to hold space open for love, somehow taking responsibility for God being present, available in the midst of horror. The more fully she gives herself to prayer, and to what she senses of this call, the more she finds herself capable, even in these most harrowing circumstances, of being profoundly non-anxious, forgiving, at peace. You cannot help us, she writes to God. We must help you to help ourselves. That is all we manage these days, and also all that really matters, that we safeguard that little piece of you, God, in ourselves. And commenting on this vision, Rowan Williams observes, the religious life on this account means taking on the task of ensuring a habitation for God, a God who does not guarantee for God's self a place in the created world. And so is visible only when a human life gives place, offers hospitality to God, so that this place, this identity becomes a testimony. See, that idea that God isn't something else, God isn't just going to beam down like Scotty, you know, like it's, it's, the the habitation of God in the human world is the lives that offer God hospitality. As Etty writes, there must be someone to live through it all and bear witness to the fact that God lived even in these times. And why should I not be that witness? And remarkably, in a letter written just two months before she died, God is in safe hands with us despite everything. This is the sense, I think, in which we can see the vocation to be pain bearers as concerned not just with transforming the world's pain, but with the possibility of making space for God, bearing God in the world, making manifest the truth of God through the medium of a life. So, so far then, I've identified what seemed to me two key aspects of the Christian vocation. I've spoken of the call to be co-creators and pain bearers. And last of all, I want to touch on the call to live now from God's promised future, living in hope. kind of implicit in all I've said so far is the assumption that there is a a normative horizon of earthly life. That is, in the Christian vision, there is an orientation, a direction to which we are called to be responsive, which is the promise of all things reconciled, the dream of shalom, the attitude or blessedness in which all people and the whole of creation will share. Yet because this promise is yet to be realised, we're not there yet, Christian life is stretched out to what lies ahead, essentially expectant, hopeful. This orientation towards a promised future may seem problematic. Talk of a future beatitude can be a form of fantasy, a way of avoiding being fully present here and now, and so of confronting the difficult truth of reality. Historically, a vision of the world to come as compensating for the misery of earthly life has all too often been deployed to justify inaction in relation to injustice and oppression. We see it even today among some Christians in relation to the climate crisis. Oh, it doesn't really matter because there'll be a new creation and, you know, whatever. (laughs) The poor, the abused, the dispossessed have been told to put up with unspeakable conditions because your reward will be great in heaven. While the tragedy of unhealed and meaningless suffering has often been falsified by too glib an appeal to eternal life. So what's critical here, I think, is the difference between a wishfulness that seeks to bypass the way things are and a hope forged in the undergoing of the way things are. Wishfulness bypasses the way things are Hope is forged in the undergoing of the way things are. Authentic hope is not invented but discovered. It's not a deluded yearning for what is not, but a lived and usually hard-won knowledge that the fullness of what already is, God's love and life, is at work here and now to transform suffering and death. Like resurrection, hope is the gift of aliveness, possibility and newness in the midst of what had seemed closed and impossible. In human experience, it arrives as empowerment to live out that fullness in the face of all that contradicts it. So it's that sourcing in that other energy. In other words, and this is crucial, unlike wishful thinking, hope is conceived not in lack, but in wholeness. We enjoy, Paul says, the first fruits of the Spirit, and our vocation is so to live from this reality, continuously re-grounding ourselves in it, that we participate in its consummation. The just man justices, wrote Gerard Manley Hopkins in his glorious poem As Kingfishers Catch Fire, and this expresses it. The one who has been justified, made just, become whole, is the one capable truly of doing justice. The just man justices. He keeps grace that all his goings graces. And this is why the vocation to be reconciled, to live now from God's reconciling future is a prophetic vocation. It refuses to settle down with a compromised and compromising status quo to accommodate itself to the thwarting of God's outpouring, self-giving love. Hope energises, emboldens and shapes our protest at that which refuses or frustrates fullness of life for ourselves and one another, for the earth and its creatures. A contemplative Christianity is no longer stuck at the level of dualistic devotion, supplication and propitiation. Rather, through Christ and in the power of the Spirit, we are called to incarnate in our own lives God's way of being, to join with God in what God is doing. I've been trying to put flesh on this idea of participation to explore what it might look like actually to realise something of this unitive consciousness in the way we live. I noted earlier the correspondence of the ways of being I've identified with the Trinitarian life of God. And just as it's a feature of Trinitarian doctrine that no aspect of God's life is separate from any other, so it is with these aspects of our vocation as Christians. Co-creating, pain-bearing, living in hope. Each informs, shapes and leads towards the other, ever-deepening, ever-expanding. I said also that the urgency of Christian vocation is necessarily coloured in our time by the ecological crisis. It might seem that given this context, the ways of being I've explored are unhelpfully abstract and general. How exactly does celebrating the world, offering it back to God in praise and thanksgiving, help the polar bears on their melting ice caps? How does bearing the pain of grief or grounding ourselves in hope against hope, how does that transform a toxic global politics? Is all this theologising just a subtle way of avoiding the hard graft of engagement, a spiritualised form of magical thinking? Well, I'm aware there are dangers here. But what I've sought to identify are the underlying energies, the basic dynamic of our human vocation. These ways of being are to be incarnated, not in place of necessary practical action, but in such a way that they shape, inform and transform the character of all we do, think and say. They're what can sustain us to resist unreality, to be faithful to the work of love in the midst of oppressive, lying, self-serving systems. Just how they show up as we work and live in our various situations as parents and grandparents, as scientists, economists, activists, Ministers, educators, healers, consumers, citizens, and so on. Well, discerning these questions is part of our taking responsibility for our action and inaction and for the systems and forms of life that we're part of and that determine the life of the world. Meditation is the practice that sustains us in these ways of being and that keeps us real. The daily faithful commitment to self-giving prayer and silence is not to a Christian ideology, but to live encounter with the reality of God whose life more and more suffuses ours. Before God and with God, we live without God, says Bonhoeffer. And sense here is stretched almost to breaking point. And yet not quite. We must live without God in the sense that we're not going to be rescued by some deus ex machina who will pluck us from disaster. Nevertheless, God is. And meditation helps us realise this, to receive ourselves and our vocations ever and anew through our transparency to the divine life. A contemplative Christianity in a world to come of age is thus, it seems to me, the essentially fragile faith that at the heart of all things, mostly hidden and self-effacing, an energy of radically self-giving love is, despite everything, operative. To participate in this love, to let it break the surface in us as it does in Christ, this remains our gift and task. After the betrayal of Saruman the White, it was to another hobbit, Frodo Baggins, that fell the apparently impossible task of bearing the ring into Mordor to be destroyed. It was a perilous journey, full of fear, and threatening always to be more than could be borne. At one point Frodo cried to Gandalf, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had ever happened. And Gandalf replied, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Sometimes, oftentimes, I've wished I lived in another age that the terror of these times was not upon us and our world. But there's also this, lines from the epilogue of Christopher Fry's play, A Sleep of Prisoners. Thank God our time is now, when wrong comes up to face us everywhere, never to leave us till we take the longest stride of soul we ever took. Affairs are now soul size. The enterprise is exploration into God. Our self-offering prayer, our persevering, fragile faith are our means of exploring into God, of taking the longest stride of soul we ever took. Dare we imagine that our being willing in this spirit to face the wrong that comes up everywhere will be a contribution even now to renewing the face of the earth.